Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 3 and Revelation 21. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. The Lord God said, the man must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And from Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, if you have a worship folder in front of you, I've got to show you uh, one mistake. Do you see where it says it's from, the sermon is from Genesis 1 and Revelation 22? It really should be from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. <laughs> I think somebody thought he's not going to try to do the whole Bible in one, one service, is he? B but I am. So... Uh, <laughs> 
roll up your sleeves. We're going to go all the way from creation uh, to recreation. Uh, when I read through the Bible or when I've read through the Bible again, I always think about the fact that God is involved in everything. And I think about this um, section in The Lord of the Rings when uh, Sam Gamgee is there. He and Frodo have just had a huge, huge battle, victory through it, and they know that more are coming. And Sam just looks over to Frodo and says, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. See, it's, it's the idea that there is a larger story at play here. Somebody else really leads. This is going somewhere. Do you ever feel that way? That you're making decisions in this world, and yet somehow there's something or someone really working out a plan? Do you ever feel that way? I felt that way, and Chris felt that way when we first were candidating to become a pastor here at Lake Avenue Church. I mean, on our side... We were making decisions all the time. We were investigating every one of you to find out what kind of people are here. I know you were doing the same thing about us. We were praying about it. And yet, when we really got into it, it felt almost as if there was no decision to be made, that, that someone, that God was actually doing something much bigger, working out his plan, and we were just a part of it. Again, do you ever feel like that? If you've ever read what sociologists are now saying about these different generations, one of the things they say that is that one of the characteristics of, of the Gen Xers, and some of you I'm sure are here, born something between 1965 and 1985, supposedly one of the characteristics of you is that you don't like this idea of a big meta-narrative, of a big story playing out in this world, because we're told the postmoderns really didn't like any authority from the outside striking and being in control, but that we all are in control. If, I, I don't know if that's true about Gen Xers, but if it is, that's really switched with the generation after the Gen Xers, the so-called millennials from about 1985 to 2005, if you've been born in there, who I'm told or I read about long to be a part of something bigger in your lives. Well, it, whether that's true or not, I just want you to know the Bible says that we're becoming a part of something much bigger in our lives than just our own individual choices, that there is a work of God in our world to take what he made and then became broken and to remake it and make it right. The Bible, using Sam Gamgee's language, says that there is a tale that you and I have fallen into. And it's a tale that it says began from eternity past, Paul would put it that way in the book of Ephesians, and that's going to end when it ends, really an eternal ending, in a kingdom of peace and justice. It's going to be a kingdom, one of the parts that I preach about it all the time, that I love so much, that in that kingdom there will be people from every people group, every language group, every nation, and one of the most amazing things that's almost impossible to believe but God says is going to be the true, true is that each one of us is going to be complete in Christ. Each one of us around the throne of God is going to actually be what God created us to be in the first place, but we've messed it up, but he's going to remake us. See, it's already a whole sermon there that I'm giving to you. We're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So for the last number of weeks, we have been looking at the beginning at how God created the world. When he finished, everything was very, very good. 
Then we came last week to Genesis chapter 3, which may be the darkest chapter in the entire Bible, which tells us how evil entered into paradise. If you don't read Genesis 3 carefully, you might read that thing and think that there is absolutely no hope from human beings from that point on. Uh, because when you get to the very last verse, this is what you read in verse 24. After God drove them out, Adam and Eve, the people out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to that tree of life. In other words, the ability to live forever was no longer, it seems, available. It seems like the only thing that human beings could live for is, is the futility of what some people think that life is all about, of dying and nothing that comes after that. And yet, if you look carefully at Genesis 3, you see that in spite of the fact that some judgment had to come, that God does not leave even Adam and Eve after their sin in despair or with no future, nor does he do that for you and me. And I want to show it to us today. We're going to see how those who were in paradise lost paradise and then can find it again. It really is kind of this beautiful love story of God with his people. Uh, yes, Chris, like a Jane Austen story, a love that was there that is lost and then is regained. And we're going to see that it's all situated in gardens, in gardens. You ready to go at it? Okay, the beginning. God's story with us as human beings started in a garden. It's the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 through 3. Again, the powerful God spoke everything into being, and everything was very good, he said. And then in Genesis 2, we see that this same powerful God also is a relational God. He walks with people. He talks with people. He gives people made in his image this great opportunity to have our lives count, to actually care for and rule over the world, the rest of creation that he has made so that it can remain very good. So at the, at the end of chapter 2, everything is so fantastic, all relationships right with God, with created world, and with one another. But then in chapter 3, we saw it last week, the man and woman, Adam and Eve, put themselves in God's place. There was a choice they had to make. And so I put it up here. I thought, I'll call it the people's choice. I knew this was Academy Award weekend. I thought we couldn't do that, so we'll, we'll think of the people's choice, but it's not an award. It's a loss. I want you to make note of this because we'll come back to it at the very end. They, Adam and Eve, became proud. They put themselves into God's place. Do you remember that? Second, they rebelled and they disobeyed the clear will of God that had been given in Genesis 2. And then they grasped at that forbidden fruit of the tree and they willfully sinned. Uh, we'll come back to that at the end, so just make note of those in your mind. But this experience of evil that they had when they disobeyed God opened their eyes to evil, and even they looked at one another, and they were ashamed. So you know what we, we found them doing. They were hiding in the bushes from one another and from God wearing leaves. Then in chapter 3, verse 8, the powerful God who made everything by speaking comes walking into the garden where Adam and Eve are trying to hide. So if you've never read it before, so you've got to pretend you're a first-time reader, you wonder, what is this powerful God going to do with these people who have just blatantly disobeyed him? 
And what we look at this, see in this thing, is that even though he had to punish the wrong that they had done, we see some beautiful things about what God thinks about us as human beings. Here they are. The God who is God is a God who seeks. Even when people walk away from him, you've got to picture God wants you to come back. So here, the first sign of hope is that after they have sinned, in verse 9, God says, where are you? And when you read that, I don't want you to see this as a a question of somebody sneering at them and wanting them to be shamed even more because they've messed up. Nor do I want you to read this as a law enforcement officer having to do his or her work and take criminals in. Instead, the way you should read that, that verse is God as a loving parent, knowing that his children have been wayward and so much wanting them to come back. Some of you have that in your heart today, don't you? The thing I want you to see already is when you read the Bible, God has never waited for us to come back to him. If he waited for that, he'd be waiting forever. Instead, he always comes after us. I tell you, if, if you have walked away from God this past week or even if you've been walking away from God for a long time and you decided to come back in church or even if you're trying to hide something from everybody around you, you show up at church and yet there's all this stuff inside, I want you to know that God loves you and he's already said yes to you. Jesus came into this world. He, what, what he wants you to do is to turn back to him Confess just openly and honestly what has gone wrong and trust him and he'll start again with you. So I just want you to be sure of this. When you've come to church today, whatever you may have in your life, God is looking for you today just as much as he was looking for Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. That's who he is. Any amens here? It just seems like that's a good thing. Okay, lesson two. He's not only a God who seeks us, he is a God who provides for us. Matt made that point so well last week. But the thing I want you to see is how quickly uh, God stepped in to meet Adam and Eve's immediate need. Even though they brought this problem on themselves, as we so often do, God was going to provide for them. So in verse 21, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and and, and his wife Eve, and he clothed them. God did hear what he still does. I've experienced this, that when sometimes we try to make up for our, you know, pathetic sins that we've engaged in, God comes and says, what you're trying to do isn't going to work. I'll do something better for you, even though you've walked away from me. Because I'm just telling you, leaves have never been good clothing. So you might have to tell Lady Gaga that sometimes, but uh, might as well mark it down. And even as he provided for that shame, the clothing, he did have to keep his word. Uh, They began to die. They had no access to the tree of life. Uh, They were separated from him, and they were made for him. But God, it just shows you that even though sometimes our sins have consequences, it's never done by God out of petty malice. He's he's never saying, oh, I'm bigger than you are, so I'm going to really show you if you disobeyed me. No, it's just amazing for me that God made it bearable for the very human beings who sinned against him to really survive and do well outside of Eden. 
It, it just shows me that God is the way he reveals himself to be later on in the book of Genesis, that he is Jehovah Jireh. He's the, he's the God who seeks, but he's also the God who provides. And I just pray you'll experience that. And then the third lesson we see from this about God is that God is a God who is willing, even though we walk away from him, to begin to do something to make all things new and right in our lives. Uh, I think the most intriguing verse for me in Genesis 3 is verse 15 which God was turning to, to the serpent, and he said, this is what I'm going to do. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and notice this, he will, this one who comes, will crush your head, serpent, and you will strike his heel. I think, can you imagine how much scholars have debated about what this means over the, I was tempted to try to tell you all the views. I'm not going to do that. But the thing I want you to see is it is so clear to me that what God is saying is all evil will be crushed someday. I'll deal with it. I'll punish it appropriately, and it will be gone. And also he is saying there is going to be a good end to this world. Evil will be judged. Goodness will prevail. I see in verse 15 that you and I get this first glimpse of the fact that the all-powerful God who made everything also knows everything about the future. And that he has a plan that he's working out, and he can work that plan out. That, that Sam is right. You and I have fallen into one of his tales. It, it is a tale of a great battle that we're engaged in in this world. A battle between good and evil. It's in the world as a whole. It, it wages in our hearts, doesn't it? When, when we know what, what we want to do the good, and yet the evil that we're tempted to, sometimes we give in to it because in Genesis chapter 3, the relationship between God and people made in his image has been disrupted by our sin. And the big question is when you read this thing, will God and these now sinful people who have been made in his image ever get back together again? And that brings us to the third garden. We're going to go all the way to the end, the culmination. God's story is going to find its fulfillment I'm going to call it in a city garden in the New Jerusalem. I want to take you to chapter 21 and just read a few phrases from that. Again, Laura read them for us earlier. The apostle John was there, and he saw into the future, and he said, this is what I saw. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God. And he who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making everything new. Hallelujah. See, what he's saying, and there's so much of the language, if you read the whole thing in chapters 21 and 22, is drawn straight from Genesis 1 and 2. God is saying, I'm going to make this world that I love very good again. And at least three times, just in chapter 21, a big part of it is he is going to walk and talk. He will dwell with us again. We will know him as we are known. And when that happens, not only the relationship with God will be restored, our relationship with the world will be restored. Uh, we're again going to be called upon to rule and take care of the world, but this time apparently by the power of God's Spirit remaking us, we'll be able to do it much better than we've done. And all of those broken relationships will be healed. 
It's, it's going to be a, a garden, and yet now there are going to be a lot of people because people from every tribe and language and nation will be there. It will be a city, a city with a garden. Have you ever seen anything like that? So Brandon, one time when he was in visiting, took me down to see the new uh, Grand Park down in the city that has those majestic views right here in L.A. that go from the music center to City Hall. I have a picture of it here just to show you how you see. I mean, there's something beautiful. Heaven is going to be better. It's going to be better. So let's read a little bit about it in chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, no pollution, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and it's going right down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the thing that was lost, the tree of life. Life will never be taken. Death will be no more. And the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. How much we need it. See, what happens here is the culmination, what was lost in Genesis 1 through 3. You see it is restored here. Right relationship to God restored. Uh, right relationship to the world restored. Right relationship to people restored. Even the nations restored to one another. I, I just read this thing. I, what a story. I, I, w I wish you just read it all the way through again. And when you get to this point, you just say, what a story. When things are really hard in your life, don't you wish that all that brokenness could be gone? Don't you, do you ever long for God to come and finish his story? So that when the Bible ends with Jesus declaring, I am coming soon, our hearts should resonate with chapter 22, verse 20, and say, Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So, wanted to show you that. We have the uh, first garden in Eden. We have the city garden in Revelation 22. It's really different from uh, Genesis 3 to, Gen to Revelation 22, isn't it? I mean, what happened to take us from that place where you couldn't even walk into the tree of life anymore and now to have it readily available? What happened? You know, but I'm going to show you anyway. Uh, the turning point. It takes us to another garden this time, Gethsemane, God's story of victory takes us to a garden. So with this, I want to take you to Matthew chapter 26, uh, beginning with verse 36. Just a few phrases from that. Jesus knows that the time for him to go to the cross is at hand. And this, this is what we read. When Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Jesus fell with his face to the ground, and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will be done. Um, here Jesus was in that garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew he was going to a cross, he knew he would experience not only physical death, but all the suffering that would come because he would bear in his body the punishment for your sins and mine and the sins of the world. So he knew the indescribable suffering that he was going to have to go through. 
But even more than that, what I see when I read this, and I hope you saw it as well, that when he was there, he knew he had a choice to make. A cup that he wanted to have taken away from him. He had a choice between whether he would go through this crucifixion or whether he would avoid it. Do you see it? Jesus was wrestling with the possibility of escaping that. He had to choose between his Father's will and his own will. I tell you, when you read Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see a human being, for Jesus was fully human. Just like Adam in Genesis 3, a human being with a decision to, wait, to make. My will or your will. Twice, it was so hard, he tried to get his disciples to pray with him. Do you know what they did? Maybe some of you are now, I'm looking. <laughs> I'm looking. They, they slept. So in verses 40, 40 and 41, we have some of the very important verses. I want you to see them. Jesus said, could you not watch with me for one hour? You watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Because for us human beings, the spirit is willing, but this body is weak. Do you see it at this moment? Jesus was facing that collision, and, and I felt it so often between the desire for obedience, but the desire also to go his own way and to escape. He wanted to go his father's way. His spirit was willing. But he also wanted to get away from the suffering of the cross. His flesh was weak. Which one did he want more? His will or his father's will? And that takes us back to this tale that we are in. Back when what Paul calls the first Adam was in that very same place in a different garden. Adam had a choice to make. But Adam chose selfishly. Made in the image of God, he wanted to be equal to God, didn't he? Now, the serpent said to him, you can be like God. You can make your own choices. And Adam had chosen for self Made in the image of God, he wanted more than that. He wanted control of his life. In Matthew 26, we see the second Adam in a garden. He, like the first Adam, bore the untainted by sin image of God. He has the opportunity to overturn the blunder, the failure of his predecessor. So I'm going to put it back up here. Jesus' choice between Adam's choice. Here it goes. Where Adam was proud... Jesus could, if he chose, humble himself. Where Adam rebelled, Jesus could, if he chose, be obedient. Where Adam grasped at that forbidden fruit of the tree, Jesus could, if he chose, grasp the wood of a cross. What would he do? His spirit was willing, but Jesus himself testifies. The flesh is weak. All right. Have you ever been at one of those times when you knew what was right, but you wanted to do what was wrong? You don't have to vote, because if you don't, I'll know you're not telling the truth. 
What do you do when you have that hard, costly decision to make? The Bible gives us the answer. And it comes three times in that garden. Uh, if you have Matthew 26, you can see it. If not, you will just can hear me read it. It's found in verse 39. It's found in verse 42. It's found in verse 44. I'll show it to you. Matthew 26, 39. Going a little farther, Jesus fell with his face to the ground, and he prayed, My Father, if it be possible. Verse 42. He went away a second time and prayed. Verse 44, he left them and went away once more and prayed. I know this will sound simplistic to you, but I don't want it to sound simplistic to you. The big question is, why did Jesus make the right decision in the Garden of Gethsemane and Adam make the wrong one in the Garden of Eden? Theologians have debated this for centuries. Uh, many have tried to say, well, he really couldn't have sinned because after all, he's God. And so really, this is just seems like he's having to make a hard decision, but it really isn't that hard. Do you think that's true? Do you read about Jesus sweating blots of blood when he had to make this decision? Do you know how hard this decision was for him? If he is going to make the right decision, it wasn't going to be because there wasn't really a decision here. He wasn't play-acting. He was going to make a decision of the will to do his Father's will. So again, I just ask, how did Jesus choose right when Adam chose wrong? And the Bible tells us that he made the right decision simply because he prayed. He prayed. The garden of Eden is conspicuous for its lack of prayer because <laughs> Adam and Eve didn't want to pray. <laughs> they knew what was right. They didn't want God to be there. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, the thing that fills it is prayer. And out of his blood-inducing prayer, which for, was for our benefit, Jesus urges people to be people of prayer when temptations come. Watch and pray, he said, so that when it comes, you won't fall into temptation because you too, your spirit may be willing. When you follow Jesus, you want to do what is right, but your body is still weak. In this, we begin to see what real prayer is, don't we? So different from what people talk about here in 21st century America. Let me tell you this, above all things, Prayer is seeking God's will with a heart to do his will rather than trying to get him to do our will. Amen. Did you get that? Did I say that? What is prayer? It is seeking God's will. What do you want me to do? With the heart to do his will rather than just praying to try to get God to do my will. And that brings us to us. Okay, here we are. You and I are in between people. Uh, we're after the Garden of Gethsemane, but I am telling you, we're not at Revelation 22 yet. <laughs> Have you noticed heaven hasn't arrived in Pasadena yet? Anybody notice that? <laughs> Which means that you and I still have to, in this world, we're, we're still so much in flesh. We still have to face the temptations and the difficult desires that are there. 
What, what is it saying to you if you've come to church today and you hear this? Well, I want to tell you that what happened at Gethsemane was he died and he bore your sins and he defeated sin and death by a resurrection. So right now, already, so many great things can happen in your life. It means that whatever sins are in your life, they can be forgiven. God comes seeking after you, and he has found a way to deal with your sins, to punish them, but also to set you free from sins and cast it as far as east is from the west. Hallelujah. You've come today, and if you sinned last week, forgiveness of sins is available to you on the basis of what Jesus did, starting there in that garden. That's one thing it says to you. Beyond that, I mean, it, you can have a real relationship to the God who made this world. So many people sense that there's a God, but they don't know him. Jesus says, believe in me, and you'll be born and made alive to God. You can begin to know God as your father and enter into his presence with confidence. But more than that, whereas we're just doomed to failure in our own strength, now when you believe in Jesus, he gives his Holy Spirit to you and he gives his church family to you, and your life can begin to be different. It can begin to be different. It doesn't happen in a moment. I wish it did. But you can begin to grow through the power of his spirit. Now you can begin also to take up that role of being caretakers of God's world. Uh, you can do more good than harm. And you can even use your life to count by reaching out as God Jehovah Jireh does to provide, you can provide for the hurts of the sinful world has brought to other people. You can even use your witness that through your words, people can come to faith in Jesus and be reconciled to God. That's all that can happen. And yet at the same time, I've got to warn you, I've got to warn you, while you're waiting for Jesus to return and to finish his work in you, in our church and in this world, I've been praying about this. I thought, what do I want to say to you today? Uh, you're, you're watching an, an alert right now, aren't you? What do I want to say to you today as your senior pastor? I've jotted down a couple of things. I want you to know this. The decisions you're going to have to make still, choosing between right and wrong, will involve struggle in this world in your human flesh, with the world that we live in, there are still temptations that will tug you away from God. Doing right, living for God, is still not easy. Can I have a witness for that? Yeah. Following Jesus when all of your family or friends at school or at work mock you, that's not easy. So I just want you to know when you leave church today, maybe even recommitted to living for him, saying, your will, Father, not mine, don't be surprised when it's really challenging. Um, nobody was a better Christian than Jesus, right? <laughs> and yet in this world, because he is also fully human, making the right choice was a struggle. Don't be surprised. What else do I want to say to you? But when those decisions come, I want you to know that the Lord Jesus will understand the temptations you feel and he will meet you in their midst. You know, sometimes I think we churchgoers are embarrassed to admit our temptations and shortcomings to one another. We try to look the best that we can. I know that that's true. Sometimes we even come to church and think, look around at all these other people. They don't face any of the temptations I do. 
And we even think, look at Jesus. We think he never faced any of the temptations that I do. Well, think again. I just want to think again. Because the Bible tells you, and sometimes I can't even imagine it, but the Bible tells us that Jesus felt all the temptations that you and I feel without sin. But he wrestled with them so that when you are really wrestling with whether you live for God or not, know that Jesus understands that. And when you come to him in prayer, he will enter into that situation with you. He will not leave you alone. And then, I just want to tell you that when you face temptation or a hard decision, you have a decision to make that the key to doing what is right is prayer. But it has to be Biblical prayer. I, I want you to learn from Jesus that real prayer is not a way to get God to do my will. Sometimes it seems like that's what we've turned it into. Now, get me right here. God gives us, as, as our Father, the opportunity to bring any request to him. Um, sometimes we don't have because we don't ask. So we can bring any of those things to him. But at the end of the day, Whenever we come to him and say, Lord, this is what I want you to do, at the end of the day, every prayer should end with, but Father, you are God, so your will and not mine. When you pray, I mean truly pray, the bottom line for everybody who knows this God is the same one that Jesus had. We pray, Lord, you know what I want, but your will be done, not mine. So I'll ask you at the end. I mean, what do you do? Okay, you're going to leave church today. What are you going to do when your will points one way and you know God's word points you to another? Do you think that that might happen this week? I mean, you're going to have a choice to make, just like Jesus did in the garden. What do you do? And I tell you, Jesus shows you the way. You're supposed to pray. But how do you pray? I want you to know it's a tough prayer. It's a simple one, but a tough one. Because your spirit may be willing to bring God into it, but your flesh is going to be weak. But I want to tell you this. You know I've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. When you come to that point and you face that temptation and you bring God into it, you have failed again and again in the past in that very thing. And then this time, you bring God into it. And this time... You do what God would have you to do instead of what you wanted to do. I tell you, it is the time in your life where your spiritual experience of God will be deeper than it ever has been. It will be life transforming. Do you realize that when Jesus made that hard choice to obey his Father's will rather than his own desire, it transformed the internal, entire world. And when you make that first choice to say, I have said my way so long, but this time, Lord, your will be done. It will deepen your walk with him and be one of the major steps toward this life of becoming what God made you to be. I've written this down just to think about it. I think the kingdom of God, and by that I mean the rule of God in your life, never advances more triumphantly 
that when God's people, and I hope that is you, faced with a strong decision to go our own ways, find the humility and the courage to pray. Your will be done. When you do, it will be to your joy and it will be to his glory. Amen. 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 Let me Thank you, brothers and sisters. Let, let me lead us in prayer. So, Father, pray that your spirit will take this, your word, and apply it to each one of our lives. Father, for any who have come today who have never really known you, I pray that today may be the day that they say, God, I know you're real, and now I hear I can know you personally, that this will be the day of some people's salvation. That some will simply say, here are my sins, will you take them away? And hear God say, yes. Here is my life, I place my faith in the Lord Jesus. If that's your situation, pray that prayer. For the rest of us who have come, I pray that this will be a new beginning. Father, help that to be true for us. They have new victories. They have new renewal. That people will see us and see what you are doing in us and bring glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.